We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela. Welcome everybody back to another round of the Councils of the Church, the history of them with Dr. Alan Femister, and we're tackling the big dog, the Council of Trent today. Doctor, appreciate you for coming back on and doing this. Thank you for having me. Um, so this is a terrifying, massive mammoth, leviathan, behemoth of a subject, um, and uh, it's you know hard to know where to start really, but... Um, but we left off last time with the Fifth Lustrum Council and uh, the Pope holding Julius II, holding a sort of, as it were, frivolous ecumenical council for the sake of getting the French off his back. And, uh, and you know, Lustrum V does a few important things, um, but it wasn't held because they, well, they, they kind of did need to hold a council, but that wasn't why they held it. They held it to stop the King of France holding a council, and he wasn't trying to hold a council because he was really worried about the terrible state of the church. He was trying to do it in order to scare the Pope into cooperating with his Italian policy. So nobody's motivated by the right motivations, and uh, nobody's doing what needs to be done. And, and this is one of the problems with this period, where, you know, the iceberg is already beginning to enter the side of the ship basically at this point and everyone's still the band is playing everyone's still dancing um uh, there's no the, the really people don't don't have a proper sense of the scale of the catastrophe and the scale of the scandal i suppose people have become so used to it after centuries of papal misbehavior the fact that the papal misbehavior has kind of reached a a new low is covered over by the fact that you know, look at the art. You know, we're building this amazing new St. Peter's. We're the center of the Renaissance. Um, you know, Italy's so exciting. It's the cultural center of Western civilization. Um, you know, so so no, the fact that the Pope, you know, has you know, illegitimate kids and who he's openly trying to, you know, um, win a place for in the world and all that kind of stuff is not, is not, you know, that's bad, I suppose. That shouldn't really be happening, but you know, hey, one of those special Italian shrugs, and let's just get on with it. Um, and um, so, so yeah, nobody fully realizes. And the other problem is that all the there's been this string of increasingly worrying heretics in the late Middle Ages, like um, Wycliffe and Hus, and um, and they're sort of like kind of dry runs for Luther. And and the the problem that's going to happen with Luther, so three months after the end of Lateran five, Luther is going to, according to the traditional count, nail his 95 theses to the church, castle church door in Wittenberg, denouncing the sale of indulgences, and that's going to be begin the the, the collapse and the, and the un, un, irretrievable chaos. Um, but the, the particular problem is that he he comes up with a with a, a heresy which works in itself as a system 
Now it doesn't work as an account of Christianity, as the as the Enlightenment and the French Revolution and the secularization of Europe are going to prove it. It it renders Christianity ridiculous, um, but it 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 itself it, it, it sustains itself as a you know it's it's like a cancer. I mean, or a virus topically. I mean, uh, it 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 replicates itself. It has a it has an interior logic which makes it resistant to cure. Um, so Luther uh, was a member of the Augustinian friars. Um, he uh, was the son of a, of a miner. His family were quite prosperous by, by the time he was a teenager, may have been less so when he was younger. Um, uh, there's some suggestion that his father was quite violent. Uh, there's a sort of Psychobabble explanation of his theology, which is uh, which is that uh, you know Daddy used to come home and beat the hell out of him for no particular reason, and that was his view of God. So, so, here, boy. It's like, <laughs> so it's like as long as you just unquestioningly obey the arbitrary tyrant, there's a chance you won't beat the crap out of him. <laughs> um, and and the da Lutheranism. Um, but uh, the, uh, um, yeah, so. Um, uh, but that's the psychobabble explanation. But anyway, he um, he was he was very influenced by um, the um, uh, by the Brotherhood of the Common Life, who were a, a group which had grown up and 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 from whom had grown a reciprocal relationship. Uh, what's called the Devotio Moderna. He was from Saxony in Germany, northern Germany, and uh, it's, you know it's quite a um, from from a Mediterranean centric, Roman centric world. It's quite a remote region um, uh, and he didn't really leave it very much he went to Rome once didn't like it much um, uh, he um, <clears throat> but this Brotherhood of the Common Life yes they're very influenced by Devotio Moderna Devotio Moderna was a, was a trend in late medieval spirituality which was quite anti-intellectual the most famous um, exemplar of it is um, the imitation of Christ um, and if you remember, the imitation of Christ begins with a with a sort of attack on people who are able to discourse learnedly about the Trinity, but offend the Trinity by their lives. Right? Now, that's a perfectly legitimate sentiment, obviously, um, but uh, but it, it reflects the sort of tiredness of um, intellectual life uh, that had grown up in the late Middle Ages because of this feud between. Uh, the nominalists and the realists, the, the the Via Moderna and the Via Antiqua that we talked about on previous occasions, which had taken over medieval schools and um, and all the different religious orders and had, and the universities all been divided up between these two warring sides, and um, the Via Moderna had been treated as legitimate instead of being condemned as heretical, and as a result. Um, it, think theological questions have become interminable. So you know you you pour into that the the rivalry of the different religious orders and the fact that a lot of these questions were not determined because of the damage it would do to the prestige of the losing religious order, as well as because of the truth of the question. And so 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 the the medieval intellectual process, as it were, had become corrupted, and um, uh, and and people have become tired and repulsed by scholasticism and that was a big problem and uh, the and, and whereas um, spirituality you know before that period was very much tied to a deeper and deeper understanding of the faith and the mysteries of the faith it was now becoming detached from that and it was all about 
contemplation of the, the life of our Lord, but in a way that was much more detached from the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation, much more appealing to the emotions rather than to the, rather than to the whole person, including the intellect. And um, now, uh, the particular branch of the medieval schools Luther ended up belonging to was the uh, Via Moderna. So, so they're the baddies, right? Who don't believe there's any real nature to things. And uh, and within each of the two VA, there was a uh, there were the Scole, um, uh, the different schools, and he belonged to the Scola Augustina Moderna. So they were kind of uh, Augustinians um, who followed the Via Moderna, which is crazy really because I mean St. Augustine is more realist than St. Thomas I mean the, the few the few areas where where St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine do not agree are often centered around questions where um, St. Augustine's uh, more platonic realism means that St. Thomas can't follow him so the, this school of, of theology that Luther ends up adhering to is is very odd in that it's like say August, Augustine's theology with the metaphysics ripped out, and then this completely alien and evil uh, nominalist metaphysics shoved in, and, and and that kind of gets you to roughly where Luther is intellectually. He um, apparently ends up joining the Augustinians because of a rash vow, uh, not a good sign during a thunderstorm. Very odd. Of course, I mean, a lot, there's a lot of skepticism about Luther's own account of his early life and the episodes which led to his intellectual development. Some people think they're they're fabricated, but it's the sort of thing where it's impossible to just say one way or the other. A bit like early Islam. <laughs> um, and uh, um, yeah, I've heard about but, him being chased by uh, people that he owed money to, and he ran into the the church. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of possible alternative narratives of what really happened, but you know, it's too late to do the expose documentary, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so the, the protagonists are all dead. So, uh, so we'll, we'll never know for certain. Um, and um, he was uh, he was seen as very bright, uh, and he was sort of rushed through his theological education, ordained with mostly with philosophy and, and his kind of, and so his theology was also very much kind of made up by himself um, uh, but I mean he was pretty committed to the Via Moderna he he referred to my master Occam. I always feel this overwhelming desire to go <laughs> whenever I quote that line but anyway for some reason um, but uh, uh, so he um, uh, yes he um, now the other thing which was very much around him and around uh, around European intellectual culture at the time was um, humanism uh, which is this uh, phenomenon uh, attached to the Renaissance of attempting to revive and give the greatest prestige to the elegance of one's literary capacity and one's facility with ancient languages over and above a, a brilliance at logic and um, and uh, Aristotelian philosophy, right? So this is part of the reaction against scholasticism, and it leads to a, a disparaging of medieval authors who try to write in kind of straightforward, easy to understand Latin instead of showy Ciceronian Latin. And uh, there's a very interesting book actually called um, by James Hanam uh, called uh, God's Philosophers about how, well, one of the main themes of the book is how the huge progress in late medieval science was stalled for about 150, 200 years around the Renaissance because um, 
people just stopped reading the medieval science because it was medieval and not written like Cicero had written it. And therefore it became despised. And even Galileo was kind of like sneakily reading stuff written by late medieval authors in order to get the actual stuff out of it, but not admitting to it because he, because he didn't want to, you know, be associated with monkish people. Um, so yeah, not good. So, so there was this kind of ridiculous intellectual, yeah, literary snobbery which was causing great harm to western culture and was part of the kind of whole neo-pagan phenomenon of the renaissance um but one of the one of the key elements of that is going back to the ancient text from classical times and spurning what the medievals and even the fathers although the fathers were less less in trouble um at least on paper um uh what they'd done with it um and uh, so you've got this dreadful false nominalist philosophy. You've got this devotional um, concentration on emotion um, and feeling rather than on the rather than on truth. Um, and then you've got um, you've got this uh, revolt against everything that had been developed and extrapolated and, and debated and defined. Uh, concerning the text of scripture since the ancient world and, and all of these flow together into Luther's um, Luther's theology. Now then of course we have this account again which is disputed part of his own account of his own spiritual development all about how he was consumed by scruples and um, he was terrified he wasn't making valid confessions all the time and he felt hugely burdened and he was going to be damned by his failure to accumulate enough works. Now, it is true that um, that uh, there was definitely a, a worrying Pelagian trend in popular devotion in the late Middle Ages, um, and, uh, and and that's not completely to be ignored as a problem. Um, uh, it's also true that he um, uh, that the, the the in fact the Via Moderna. Although the logic that leads from from nominalism to Luther's theology of justification is quite quite obvious, um, that wasn't the way it had gone mostly up to Luther's time. They'd mostly gone in a, the opposite direction, Pelagian direction, with the idea of you know there's just God's will and your will, so this kind of voluntarist universe, um, and God demands uh, you know X number of acts of obedience from you, otherwise you're not going to be saved. So so it had been taken in a very nominal, as a very uh, Pelagian direction. But um, but in fact, the, you could easily take it in exactly the opposite direction, which is what Luther does. So if there's no real human nature, there's no objective answer to what is a good or a bad human person. Because, I mean, according to a realist account, uh, such as St. Thomas would give, you know, a squelchy brown smelly apple is a bad apple and a crisp green and red um, a spherical apple is a good apple, um, and uh, and that's just objectively true given the nature of apples. And it's the same with human beings, right? Um, you know, Thomas More is a good human being, and you know, Oscar Wilde is a bad human being. I'll be converted on his deathbed, but anyway. Um, and uh, so, so there's um, so it looks like uh, so there's not so God in making us just makes us just. So, so according to you know Saint Thomas's account, you know it's absolutely grace. God, grace is primary. Um, salvation comes to us through faith, preached by people sent by the apostles, who were sent by Christ. Um, but uh, when God brings us to justice through giving us living faith and baptism. Um, uh, he makes us just, he infuses the, the sanctifying grace and the virtues into us. 
now, but but nominalism doesn't need any of that. Um, uh, and you already see things going in a worryingly voluntarist direction with Scotus denying the necessity of the cardinal virtues for salvation, then Occam denies the necessity of any of the virtues for salvation. And, and this is this is this is the line of argument that Luther is is following up on. So basically, if you say um, if you say that, that there is no objective answer to what's a good or a bad human being, God just gets out of bed this morning and decides that the following list of attributes is going to make you a good human being, but tomorrow it could be a different list, then, then God might as well just say, I'm going to treat you as just, and he doesn't have to actually change you. So this is where the extrinsic justification thing comes in. And of course, that takes away, if we believe the traditional account of Luther's spiritual development, that takes away his scruples, because basically he's given a get out of jail, free, a golden get out of jail free, jail free pass, which he can doesn't have to hand in. Uh, but can keep um, uh, for the rest of his life, and that's what justification is. Now you can imagine that's that's pretty appealing. Now I got a golden ticket. Well, exactly, that's right. There's a golden ticket that's like tied to your wrist with a special unbreakable sort of bungee chain that can't be. Um, and uh, so he, um, uh, C.S. Lewis, who of course you know, alas, never converts to Catholicism, but he wrote this very interesting book. Uh, it doesn't sound like it would be very relevant, but um, called um, uh, I'm sure I the title, Introduction to the English Literature in the 16th Century, Excluding Drama. I think it sounds, I think that's the name. Um, and uh, there's, there's very interesting, uh, he's very interesting on, on development of Protestantism and on humanism in that book. Uh, there's a, I think it's almost the opening chapter is called um, New Learning and New Ignorance. It's all about the, you know, the greater polished humanist Latin and how it caused them to, that's the new learning, and how it caused them to become incredibly ignorant because they wouldn't read anything written for about a thousand years and consequently they were idiots talking rubbish, but in beautifully elegant, slightly artificial uh, pastiche classical Latin. Um, and uh, and he, um, uh, and he also talks about how the early Protestants were not, so later on we have this sense of Puritans from the 17th century as these kind of starchy chaps with kind of black robes and, and kind of big white collars and funny hats staring with goggly eyes because, uh, you know, because you're, you've picked up a ball on the Sabbath. Um, and, uh, and, but that's, and that gets projected by people back onto the 16th century. But Lewis is quite interesting on the fact that that's completely false, that in fact the term Puritan was an English late 16th century term, but uh, meant you know they want to purify the the Church of England of bishops right because they really have bishops because their orders are invalid but the um, but I mean pretend bishops um, that was what the, that was the purity they were after it didn't mean a particularly starchy lifestyle though that, that 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 becomes partly what it means later on but in the first generation of Protestantism it was all very kind of you know the Protestants were the bad boys you know the rock and roll lifestyle because because they thought that whatever you did didn't make any difference to your salvation. I mean, Luther, you know, talks about how sometimes in order to show the death, because you can never tell whether Luther means half the stuff he says, because he's such a weird kind of Tourette'sy sort of person. But but he um, but he says sometimes in order to show the devil that you're not frightened of him, you should just go and commit adultery a few times in order to show that you ha ah, you can't do anything to me because of justification by faith alone, right? So so obviously that is kind of you know not starchy at all. And um, it's the <laughs> so, opposite of Starkey. <laughs> so, um, but uh, so you've got so sola scriptura. So obviously, famously, uh, I, uh, Protestants will often get annoyed if you say the two principles of the Reformation are sola scriptura and sola fide, only scripture and only faith. So they'll say, oh, there's all the other sole, but you're like, but that that doesn't. You can forget about that because whatever they say, because all the other ones are just rhetoric. 
So they're like, say, grace alone and Christ alone. And you're like, yeah, yeah, but we all agree grace alone and Christ alone, right? So obviously you mean something slightly wrong by it. But I mean, basically, that's true. We're saved by Christ alone and we're saved by grace alone. So those are basically just rhetorical flourishes. The things which actually the key elements of the Reformation are of faith alone and, and scripture alone. So, so faith alone comes from this nominalist stream, and scripture alone comes from this humanist stream. It's, it's a, it's a return, snobby return to the to the original classical text and refusing to read anything written in the meantime, um, and um, and uh, which of course means that you read the book in a ridiculously illiterate, stupid way out of context and get all kinds of crazy conclusions out of it uh, that anybody at the time would have thought was completely mad. I mean, again, C.S. Lewis, oddly, um, uh, he he points this out, about, there's a, a thing he does against uh, modern biblical criticism, very good, called Fern, Seed and Elephants, worth reading, um, where he um, he says, you know, he, he compares the Bible to the Lord of the Rings, actually. He says, he says um, loads of people thought that the ring was a metaphor for the atomic bomb. Right. And let me tell you, I spent a lot of time in the pub with J.R. Tolkien while he's writing that book, and it's absolutely got nothing to do whatsoever with the atomic bomb. But you think that living in the same culture <clears throat> and speculating without direct contact with the author uh, and falsely thinking that he's really into allegory. Um, uh, imagine how inane and ridiculous your speculations about the meaning of what St. Mark wrote are going to be after 2,000 years cut off from, from the stream of, of interpretations. Wow! So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he says, but you know, Professor Tolkien can, can correct you, um, but, but, and he says, great line says, St. Mark is dead. And when you meet St. Peter, you will have more pressing matters to discuss. Um, and uh, it's a great line. What kept him from jumping across? Come on. <laughs> I think the problem was he was raised a, an Ulster Protestant. So it was a really big emotional thing. You know, Ulster Protestantism is, you know, very hard. You know, it's built on the ethnic cleansing of the... Uh, sorry, Ulster Protestants. Um, uh, it's built on the ethnic cleansing of uh, the um, Catholic Irish population of that part of... So it's tricky to decide that Catholicism is actually true because then the last vestige of an excuse for the fact that you're there in the first place disappears. But, um, uh, but there we are. I mean, I, I fortunately, the English gave up on Roman pagan, sorry, on, on Germanic paganism. Otherwise, we might have to believe that Germanic paganism was legitimate in order to justify our having driven the Welsh out of England. But anyway, but the, <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, yes. Uh, of course, yeah, Bede actually, yeah, Bede says that it's okay because the Welsh failed to evangelise the English and God was punishing them for, for not having evangelised the English. And so we got to convert to Christianity and feel smug about the fact that we'd nicked somebody else's country at the same time. But anyway, there we are, sorry, tangent. Right, so um, uh, so th this is, so it, it's very much latching onto the spirit of the age. Uh, it's morally convenient for people's individual lives. Um, it also makes it impossible to refute because it's all based on your own weird private interpretation of scripture, right? So, so you, I mean, you can't, the, the, you're, you're, you're refusing any other authority you're, as, and you're making a virtue out of it. So people say, well, look, nobody for 600 years who ever read this thing thought that it meant what you're saying it meant, or a thousand years or 1500 years thought that it meant what you're saying it, it meant. It means so, so how on earth can you be plausible when you say, oh, you know, the traditions of men, I'm so virtuous because I do not rely on the traditions of men, but on God's holy word. You're like, no, 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 we're discussing what God's holy word really means. Like, I'm not listening. <laughs> right? 
<laughs> so, so yeah. Um, and uh, of course, you can also, well, on the one hand, you're about putting the scripture in the hands of every man. But on the other hand, you can say, how's your New Testament Greek? Because if it's not good enough, I don't even have to talk to you, um, even though I don't have it myself. Um, and uh, so, so, so I mean, there's all sorts of get out cards. So it's got a built-in irrefutability, unfalsifiability thing. And also it means that, you know, you can do what you like. In terms of your lifestyle and it won't make any difference so so you know it's, it's very plausible and attractive and it has a because it destroys the visibility of the church because it becomes the church becomes a collection of those people who read the bible in the correct way i.e., the same way as me um uh, it surrenders the church into the hands of the state and um uh, because uh, anything like pilgrimages and monasteries become uh, expressions of works which are necessary and are in fact wicked and are the rags of our tainted human righteousness that is useless for earning our salvation blah 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 that means that it's handy for the local aristocracy because it means they can trash the local church steal all the stuff that's made of nice precious metals and take it away and claim that they're being virtuous by doing this close the monastery steal their lands etc etc and that's that's all oh i'll be virtuous so you know so so you can have a thousand mistresses smash up the local monasteries and steal all their stuff and um and not listen to anybody who tells you that it's all rubbish and that's all virtuous um and whether it isn't even if it isn't virtuous doesn't matter because virtue doesn't matter so yeah um uh it's 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 a brilliant uh, it's a brilliant solvent for christianity essentially but anyway so a few months after last one five well yeah it brings us back to indulgences. So, in fact, people at the time, one of the reasons why he manages to Lutheranism rampages so, so, so unrestrainedly for so long before Trent is finally called. Right, so Trent is held from uh, 1545 to 1563. So that's a long time. It's like 25 sessions, I think, if I remember rightly, um, and uh, and it's in three three chunks it's held. It, it, it keeps being sort of suspended and then 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 reconvened. Um, and um, uh, but obviously, uh, 1545 is is very late, right? Um, uh, Luther dies within a year of that, um, and uh, he's had a whole lifetime in order to trash the church in the meantime. And um, uh, so part of the reason is because the papacy is so corrupt; they're desperate to avoid having a council, um, and uh, and they don't want the church to be reformed. And um, because they can't maintain their lifestyle if the church is reformed, because a lot of their, a lot of their, the 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 lifestyle of the, of the Renaissance papacy uh, relies on people enjoying benefices that they're never going to visit, right? So they're they're all bishops of you know bishop of somewhere in Norway, bishop of somewhere in Scotland, bishop of somewhere in 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 Hungary, and they live in Italy and they've lived in Italy their whole lives. They're only eighteen years old, and so you know it's ridiculous, um, and. Um, and but they need the money and um uh but so so both the lifestyle and the actual bureaucratic operation of the roman curia relies on uh absenteeism and pluralism so so the great abuses which are destroying the the, the life of the church are absenteeism which is when you don't bother to visit the place that you're nominally the bishop or the or the or the pastor of um pluralism that's when you've got several different of these things going on at the same time um, nepotism that's when somebody's appointed to a position because they're the relative often the illegitimate child of the um of somebody else not because they were elected to it or have any possible qualification for it um simony that's when you buy spiritual offices these are all completely i mean the papacy radiates these abuses across the entire church i mean they're they're bad enough as it is 
in uh, throughout the church, but but the the centre and cause of a huge bulk of them and the perpetual exemplar of these abuses is the papacy itself. So 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 the the situation is unbelievably terrible. But I mean that they're. But they're like, yeah, but we're the centre of the Renaissance. Look at our wonderful paintings and sculptures and buildings. You're like, yeah, but that's not really mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. Go forth and do incredible neoclassical sculptures. Um, uh, it's not our Lord never brings that one up. So, um, <laughs> so the, that's on John uh, chapter twenty nine, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Uh, so yeah, so they don't want the party to end, basically. So they, they, of course, they, they've been nervous about councils because they don't want an outbreak of conciliarism again, which is okay. But, but I mean, but the the real reason, let's be frank, by this point, they don't want it is because they don't want to be reformed. They don't want these abuses to be eliminated. They have no way way of conceiving how their world would end. Essentially, um, they they would become. Uh, and I think you get this phenomenon quite often in history and in church history, that the People see at a certain point that if I if these problems get fixed, um, I will become an embarrassing interlude in the history of the church. See, I mean, um, uh, the entire epoch which has defined me and whose values I have furthered will no longer be as I imagine it is now. A wonderful thing. Hey, look at the buildings I've built and the amazing court of artists and humanists have around me. Instead of that, it'll be like, oh gosh, what a terrible, awful age in the history of the church. If only we could airbrush that out of church history. And and so yeah, it it it's this massive psychological, emotional, moral pressure on these popes not to do anything to fix all of these problems. And of course, they're in the habit of thinking of themselves as central Italian princes and not as the vicar of Christ, um, you know, the visible leader of the church. Um, so, you know, but I conquered, uh, you know, an extra bit for the papal states. I am a good pope. Look, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's not it's it's yeah, it's disaster. Anyway, so the particular circumstances of Luther's uh, conflict in 1517 are horrendous. So basically, his patron had built up a huge collection of relics in his castle church, and he was very keen for people to come and visit them. There was no special feast day or shrine because it was a huge collection of relics of loads of different saints. So, uh, so all saints became the uh, the big day when you know he expected people to turn up, visit the shrine, buy stuff in the gift shop, all that kind of thing, make a donation. And um, uh, so, Reformation Day, which is celebrated as the day that Luther um, issued his ninety five theses attacking the sale of indulgences and attacking indulgences in general, is of course Halloween, the day all hell would break loose. Um, uh, which is the day um, day before All Saints Day, obviously, All Hallows Eve. Um, and that's because of the, of the fact that there was a huge uh, row brewing about, about the indulgences attached to this shrine uh, of, of, of Luther's own patron. Now, uh, he, um, uh, the problem was that a nearby bishop, um, Albert of Brandenburg, it's very confusing because there's an awful lot of Alberts of Brandenburg knocking around, but anyway, he um, he uh, was teenage bishop, and he already had a couple of sees in Germany, and uh, he wanted to enjoy another one, 
And, um, and basically, uh, you know, that's absolutely forbidden unless you can get a dispensation. And if you have ways of oiling the bureaucratic wheels in Rome, you can get a dispensation. So, so, th so there's this um, Albert fellow, he wants to become the Archbishop of Mainz, which is a, uh, which is one of the electoral sees in Germany. So it's very, very important. It's one of the three most important sees in Germany politically. Um, and uh, so he needs, but he already has, he's already Bishop of, of, of some other places as well. Uh, so, and he's already got dispensations for those, which he's also already um, paid bribes or administrative charges to people in Rome to, to get to get away with this. So he, um, so he's got problems. He's too young to be a bishop. He's already bishop of several other places. I don't know if he's even ordained. I can't remember whether he's been ordained or not. I mean, this is very common. Uh, there's there's a there's a film set in the 18th century I was watching years ago, and there's these two Protestant Hanoverian princes sitting next to each other and. And, and, and they've got all these kind of bling on their on their outfits. And one says, what's that? Pointing at one of the little things. He says, oh, I discovered the other day I'm the Bishop of Magdeburg. And of course, he's like a Protestant layman. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration. But I mean, this is, uh, I mean, it's this, this is the kind of horrendous phenomenon. So he's trying to get a dispensation to get this additional archdiocese. And so he thinks, well, I haven't really got the money for the dispensation, but that's okay. Um, I'll just pledge the revenues of the archdiocese for several years into the future, they'll go back to these curial officials and that'll pay them off for getting me the dispensation and then I can enjoy my archdiocese. But then he discovers that, that the last several incumbents of the archdiocese have been doing exactly the same thing. So, so the revenues of the archdiocese have been pledged uh, to pay bribes for years to come, so 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 they wouldn't uh, the, the the new bribes wouldn't come on stream uh, for for like decade and a half or more, right? So so he's and, and the curial official is like no 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 we need our money now. We, I mean we we need to facilitate the bureaucratic process now, um, and um, so he's so he goes to talk to the Fugger Banking Corporation of Augsburg about getting a loan to be able to pay the bribes, um, and. Um, and they're like, well, okay, but what are you going to put up? How are we going to know that you're going to be able to pay the loan? And um, but then the helpful Roman curial officials say, well, you know, you have a problem, we have a problem. We would like to help you. We would like to help these helpful Fugger banking people. Um, uh, so now, if you remember from last time, uh, uh, Julius II has knocked down St Peter's Basilica in order to build his grand new Renaissance Peter, uh, St Peter's Basilica. And uh, oh, actually, I wickedly said that it was Michelangelo who was made the architect. He does become the architect, and uh, Julius II was his patron. But it's it's actually Bramante who is the initial architect, and and Michelangelo takes it over a bit later after Julius II's death. Anyway, just a bit of correction there. But anyway, um, so he's knocked it down. He's building a new one. He needs a lot of money to build his new basilica, which he's planning to be the largest church in the entire world. And um, show what an amazing pope he is. Um, and um, uh, so he needs a lot of money for that. So he decides to start, uh, as we mentioned last time, uh, taking in donations for giving indulgences for donations towards the rebuilding of St. Peter's. So, uh, so, so the Roman curial machine is already taking in cash for indulgences for the rebuilding of St. Peter's. And um, so, so the curial officials suggest to, to this dodgy bishop, they say, well, you could have an indulgence preached in your territory um, uh, for the rebuilding of St. Peter's, and um, half of that money could go uh, to the 
to the Fuga Banking Corporation to pay off the loan which they will give you to pay us to facilitate the administration costs of giving you your dispensation for holding three dioceses simultaneously and being a teenager. Although I should say in this defense that he's in his 20s, but I suppose not a teenager. Um, and um, uh, so, yeah, so basically the indulgence being preached that, that, that Luther gets uh, annoyed about is uh, in fact really going to a banking corporation to pay for a bribe to officials in Rome in order to allow uh, a decadent um, uh, young chap to own three different uh, dioceses at the same time so that he can sustain his lifestyle. Um, yeah, so that's not good, really. Difficult to defend, you know, if you're, you're kind of, um, yeah, we need you to go in and defend the church's doctrine of indulgences. Oh, great. Okay. Well, um, you know, uh, can you explain the circumstances? Oh, great. So you've got to go out there and defend the church. Those things are absolute catastrophe. Anyway, so now this was... Um, Luther's patron was really annoyed because his, his his gift shop for his relic collection um, was reliant on uh, on people coming to his his church with all the relics on All Saints Day because it had lots of indulgences attached to All Saints Day because of his collection of relics. But nobody was going to come because they were all buying their their indulgences off this Tetzel guy who was preaching the indulgence, which was actually to pay for the bribe, etc. So so Luther's patron was behind him because he was annoyed about this, right? So. Um, so that's the context in which he now, but of course, I mean, so that is a horrendous scandal, but really what Luther's all about is not, oh, aren't indulgences terrible, which of course he does think indulgences is terrible because they have absolutely no function in his new version of Christianity. Um, but, uh, but really, uh, what he's interested in is in promoting his new version of Christianity, but the, this, this horrendous example of Renaissance corruption um, uh, provides him with the ideal opportunity to, uh, the, the ideal soapbox on which to stand, from which to, to insinuate his new doctrines. Um, uh, and uh, which have all sorts of appeal for the reasons we've already discussed independently of, and of course everyone always, people living immoral lifestyles, always like to be able to point out to the hypocrisy of the people who are criticizing them. So, so you've got a free pass to live an immoral lifestyle uh, and you've got staggering hypocrisy to point out whenever you feel the need. Um, so yeah, disaster. So um, now, but for the first couple of years, Rome does not enough, right? And one of the problems, one of the reasons why they're not doing enough is because the elector of Saxony the local ruler, Luther's local ruler, is, is behind him. And um, the Emperor Maximilian, uh, who you remember was one of those um, people who was uh, who scared Julius II into um, calling the Fifth Lateran Council because they got behind this rival council. Um, but the Emperor Maximilian uh, has died and um, or is about to die and then does die. Um, and um, the, uh, the popes are terrified of Charles of Ghent the greatest Belgian who ever lived. So Charles of Ghent um, is uh, is the son of, was the grandson of the Emperor Maximilian, uh, but his father died in a shipping accident. So um, so he inherited his father's uh, um, patrimony early. Um, Maximilian's son, Philip, had married the heiress to, to Ferdinand and Isabella of uh, Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile, who discovered the Americas and who'd united um, two thirds of Spain together and uh, so he was um so philip and joanna um they have this son charles who's born in ghent uh in what's now belgium and charles is the heir to uh and, and maximilian had married the heiress to the duchy of burgundy and the duchy of burgundy controlled the whole of the netherlands and belgium so as they are now so so charles is set to inherit 
of the Low Countries, which are one of the richest areas in the whole of Europe, and to inherit uh, the new crown of Spain, which is unbelievably wealthy and also now is, is conquering the Americas. So, um, so Charles is going, and, and they, the, the crown of Aragon, one of the two crowns that he's going to inherit in Spain, um, controls southern Italy as well. And uh, as uh, and the Habsburgs have have major interests, obviously in in northern sorry in southern Germany, and um, so the uh, the popes and we've talked about this been a big problem for all of this period that we've discussed been discussing. The popes are like implacably opposed to there being a really powerful Holy Roman Emperor, uh, because it, it threatens their leadership of Christendom, threatens the independence of the state, papal states. But of course, this is terrible because it's structural to Christendom that there be an emperor who's there to back up the spiritual authority of the Pope. Um, and, you know, it's obviously crucial that the Pope be using a spiritual authority for the right purposes in the right way. And then it's crucial that there be an emperor who's backing it up. And so, so it's been incredibly destructive to Christendom that the popes have been desperate to prevent there being a very powerful emperor. Of course, I mean, it's understandable because often these very powerful emperors have gone rogue. But the fact that the pope's interests are seen as so inimical to theirs encourages them to go rogue. As it happens, thank the Lord, Charles V is actually a very pious Catholic. So... Um, so he's not actually a threat to uh, to the to the safety of the faith. I mean, what would have happened if Charles V had decided to get with the Reformation and use it for his own purposes is terrifying to contemplate. But um, so, um, but anyway, he's not yet Charles V. He's just Charles I of Spain, Duke of Burgundy, um, and um, and the popes are keen that he shouldn't become Holy Roman Emperor. So the the actual election. Uh, for the to replace the emperor is in 1519. Obviously, the Lutheran crisis breaks out in October, the very end of October 1517. So for the first couple of years, the the popes are are, are soft peddling it because Luther is backed up by the Elector of Saxony. They don't want to offend the Elector of Saxony because they're keen to get as many electors as possible in Germany on their side in order to prevent Charles of Ghent being elected Holy Roman Emperor. So, so not good. Now, uh, one thing they do do that now it's often said that very few people really clocked what was wrong with Luther. Right? I mean, they, they realized there was a problem, but they didn't really understand the central, the central problem. They, they saw all the different cons heretical consequences of Luther's beliefs, but they didn't realize that the core here was this justification by faith alone and sola scriptura was the key. Now, um, uh, and um, it's often said that, that, that John Fisher, St. John Fisher, the great English bishop who ends up dying for the faith and who was like, you know, the opposite of the kind of bishop represented by Albert of Brandenburg um, and uh, Albert of Hohenzollern. Um, uh, so, um, but, so he, he, well, we'll get back to Fisher in a sec briefly, but, um, but in fact, uh, Cajetan, the great um, uh, Thomistic uh, philosopher and theologian and master general of Dominicans, he also um, he also saw at least on the sola fide side he saw the core of the problem very early on as well, and he sent up to Germany um, by uh, uh, Leo the Tenth, uh, who's a Medici, the Pope at the time under whom Lateran V closed um, in October the following year, fifteen eighteen. He talks to he goes to talk to Luther, and it's a terribly interesting moment. He he realizes what's really going on here and and he 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 reads a lot of luther's stuff and he 
he sees that there are many many errors involved but that, that you can there's like a, a, a family tree of these errors and you can trace it back to a particular spot and the spot that he traces it back to is 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 luther's false understanding of the atonement itself um and uh, so he when luther's expecting like a big argument he's all ready to you know swear a lot and and, and stand up and wave his finger and be very self-righteous and he's so quite surprised when cadgerton uh, when they finally meet, Cajetan just puts in front of him one document, which is called, which is from a document of Pope Clement VI, um, all way, way, way back during the Avignon papacy, called uh, Unigenitus Dei Filius. Um, where have I put it? Uh, no, that's not it. Um, I did have a copy of it somewhere ready for me to quote at you. Um, uh, here we are. Uh, Unigentus Dei Filius of 1343, and it's actually a bull of jubilee. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, you know the, 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 the jubilees, the holy years, right? So it's, it's a bull um, declaring a holy year. And, um, and in the course of doing so, uh, the bull explains uh, the doctrine of indulgences. And... Um, but uh, it's very interesting. So he says, um, the only begotten, this is Clement VI, the only, all the way back in the 14th century, the only begotten son of God made unto us from God wisdom, justice, sanctification, and redemption, neither by the blood of goats or of calves, but out of his own blood, entered once and for all into the holies, having obtained eternal redemption. That was a quote from Hebrews. For not with corruptible things like gold or silver, with the precious blood of his very son, as of a lamb unspotted and unstained, he has redeemed us who innocent immolated on the altar of the cross is known to have poured out not a little drop of blood, which however on account of union with the word would have been sufficient for the redemption of the whole human race, but copiously as a kind of flowing stream, so that from the soles of his feet, even to the top of his head, no soundness was found in him. Therefore, how great a treasure did the good father acquire for this church militant, so that the mercy of so great an effusion was not rendered useless, vain or superfluous, wishing to, wishing to lay up treasures for his sons, so that the church is an infinite treasure to men, so that those who use it become the friends of God. Indeed, this treasure that through blessed Peter, the keeper of the keys of heaven and his successors, his vicars on earth, he has committed to be dispensed for the good of the faithful, both from proper and reasonable causes, now for the whole, now for partial remission of temporal punishment due to sins in general, as in particular, according as they know to be expedient with God, to be applied mercifully to those who truly repentant have confessed. Now, um, now, what's he, what Clement VI is saying there is that a single drop of our Lord's blood would have sufficed to redeem the world because our Lord is hypostatically one, uh, both the divine person of the word and his human nature are a single hypostasis. And consequently, um, uh, the value of, of his sufferings is infinite. Even the least of his sufferings is infinite in value. And consequently, at the moment of the circumcision, when our Lord took the name Jesus, um, uh, God saves, he had already earned the salvation of the entire human race. So the question arises, what is the what is the purpose of um, uh, of all the all, all those terrible other sufferings? And um, what Clement VI is saying is is the those sufferings exist in order to uh, remove all the temporal punishment due to all the sins which we commit. Now that seems a little banal, but if you look at it the other way around, what it means is is that our Lord is, as it were, meriting the new heaven and the new earth. By every so, so he's already merited the the salvation 
of the, of, of the whole human race by a single drop of blood. But now all the merit that we will merit, that the mystical body will merit, is being merited, if you see what I mean. So um, uh, um, I was thinking, I've, I think this has just occurred to me, I don't think I've got any helpful authority to back this up, but if you think about the, um, the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, our Lord, you know, he breaks the, the five loaves and the, and the fishes, and then he distributes them to the 5,000, and, the, and they're not exhausted. All the 5,000 are fed. And then there are 12 baskets of scraps left over at the end. And I think in a way that rather well expresses uh, um, uh, what Clement is, Clement VI is trying to say here. So there's our Lord's death on the cross, which is the breaking of the bread, um, of the loaves and the fishes. Um, and from that from that is merited all of our participation in that so all the merit that is merited by um every single christian in a state of grace is it christ merited that they merit it that's why it says saint augustine and the council of trent say um when christ crowns our merits he crowns his own gifts right so so but then beyond that, there is, it's still possible from that huge treasury of merit, as Pius, as, as um, Clement VI calls it, uh, to take away the temporal punishment owed by people who have not done anything to take it away. So, so if you imagine the people, the 5,000 are like a Christian in a state of grace, um, enduring something out of charity and offering it up. That's like the 5,000 eating of the loaves and the fishes that have been miraculously multiplied by Christ. The loaves and the fishes themselves being Christ's body on the cross. Um, but then someone who receives an in plenary indulgence for saying the rosary in public and, and the temporal punishment due to their sins is taken away. And of course they have to do an act which will be meritorious, which is prescribed for the indulgence, but it's not, that's just prescribed as a condition of the indulgence. That's not what causes the temporal punishment to be taken away. Um, so it's just taken away without further merit as such. And um, and that is like the 12 baskets of scraps. So they're, they're, they're just, they're, and, which are derived from the treasury of merits of Christ and the saints, which is the five loaves and the two fishes, and then all of the, and the, the miraculous multiplication thereof. Um, so, but the, for, for Luther, this this is completely, I mean, this, 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 this destroys, if you were to accept this, it would like, I mean, Cajetan is very clever. It goes absolutely to the heart of his position and it, it destroys the root of the root of the root, bang, and everything else would just disappear if you were to accept that. Um, and of course he, because, and, 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 and the classically, the Protestant view of the atonement is, is very different to what Catholics believe. So, so for Catholics, if you do something wrong, sinful, there are two possible outcomes. One outcome is that something proportionate that is good is done in satisfaction to make up for the evil that was done. So satisfaction, um, vicarious, well, it's vicarious because we can't do anything proportionate because these sins are against God, who's infinite in dignity, made us out of nothing. So they cause us to owe an infinite debt, which we can't possibly pay. So Christ pays it on the cross, but he pays it on the cross because it, because, because his death in charity, uh, is utterly unfitting and inappropriate because he's the perfect one, the righteous one. And therefore, it's infinitely supererogatory, and he is he is the infinite divine person of the word. And therefore, it is the infinite good act which take which is sufficient to take away the sins of all imaginable worlds, right? Um, and uh, whereas the alternative is that you're punished forever, 
right? Because it's it's an infinite debt that you've earned, you, earn it, you can't pay it off. So you don't adhere to Christ. And so you, it's not taken away by vicarious satisfaction and you're punished forever as hell. So the alternative is, is union with the cross and Christ's vicarious satisfaction or eternal punishment, right? But um, if but there, but if you're a nominalist and you don't think there are objectively good and bad acts, right, um, that are intrinsically um, acceptable in the sight of God, God just chooses to decree that some acts be acceptable and some acts not be acceptable. Then the concept of vicarious satisfaction becomes intrinsically incomprehensible, incoherent. So uh, so the Protestants have to hive off that side. So they're left with Christ's death being accepted by God only as an act of obedience. Not, uh, not because uh, it is a, a glorious and, and good act in itself, because its gloriousness and its, its, its righteousness is derived from God deciding to decree that it's glorious and righteous. He could just decide, say that climbing to the top of Mount Nebo and playing the gazoo would be, would be sufficient to redeem the world if he wanted to instead. So, um, so uh, as a consequence, um, instead they come up with this idea of penal substitution that God punishes Christ for us instead of punishing us. Now I, I was uh, arguing with a Protestant friend of mine about this. I said, I mean, I mean that, that even on human terms that doesn't make any sense. If I was to, if I if 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 I were to, if if the Queen were to make me a duke, and I would then try and assassinate her. She'd be very annoyed, obviously, and uh, imagine she sentenced me to death. Now, obviously, the death penalty has been abolished in the UK, but imagine it hasn't. So, so she sentenced me to death. I'm waiting in prison to be executed. And imagine my sister, in the meantime, discovers that Vladimir Putin has, has buried a nuclear bomb under the Houses of Parliament. And uh, she, she goes on an incredibly dangerous mission through Russia and is tortured and escapes and gets back and, and diffuses the bomb, you know, 80s Bond movie style at the last minute, just as, the, uh, as it's about to go off, et cetera. And the Queen's absolutely delighted. And, uh, and she, she says, what can I do for you? Um, and she says, please don't execute my brother. Right, now it completely makes sense, right? It's perfectly virtuous and just for the queen to pardon me or at least not execute me because of the wonderful act that my sister did right um but if if um instead none of this happens I've, i still commit treason i'm still sentenced to death but my sister goes to see the queen and says please execute me instead of my brother and the queen would say oh yeah okay that's fine i, I just want to execute somebody i don't care whether it's you or your brother that's, that's fine as long as somebody gets executed i'll feel that i've got to have my system and that'll be it. i mean obviously that doesn't make any sense that would make the queen a terrible terrible tyrant um right, right um it wouldn't um so 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 I was trying to explain this to my, oh, was my Protestant friend, and she just said, "Oh, well, God's ways are not our ways." And I'm like, "Well, you can you can end any argument with that." Um, uh, and uh, um, so, uh, but anyway, um, so um, yes, uh, so Cajetan has realised that this that, that in this you know this few paragraphs of this document back from the 14th century are contained the 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 true heart of what's wrong. Uh, if, if you can just get Luther to say that a single drop of Christ's blood sufficed to redeem the world, boomf, the Reformation is over. So Luther's expecting a long argument about all these different subjects, that, could, but instead Cajetan just puts one piece of paper in front of him and says, sign that, and you can go home a Catholic in good standing. And Luther's like, oh. So he's like, can I think about it? And, uh, and, and he thinks about it, and he is 
uncharitably one might say his vanity gets the better of him and he decides that he's not going to sign the document and so this moment at which it could all have been solved it passes away but it's interesting how much um how how much that doctrine of a single drop of christ's blood can really get under the skin of uh, of certain baddies hansus von balthasar gets very upset about the doctrine that a single drop of christ's blood um uh uh, would be sufficient to redeem the world. It's, it's just called random speculation in empty space. Um, but yes, uh, so um, uh, so the meeting with Cladstone is not ultimately successful. Um, uh, and um, Rome is, as I mentioned, soft peddling it. And um, uh, uh, so it's not until um, uh, 15 well in 1519 um luther engages in a disputation uh with uh, another dominican called eck uh in leipzig um the greatest city of saxony um and also uh his um uh, one of his henchmen is the sort of the main main event of this disputation but the problem is uh the disputation uh is so it's more aggressive uh less pastorally sensitive and and and, and subtle than um what Cadston tries to do it's more kind of attacking luther on all fronts for all his different errors um but uh but uh Eck, um he he wins basically because his position is 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 in the the catholic position is in terms of traditional catholic theology unanswerable um but unfortunately, that makes things much, much worse. Um, having, having had it proved that his position is incompatible with the previous decrees of councils and fathers and, and, and opinions of fathers and such like, Luther's uh, response is to double down on sola scriptura. Now, uh, which kind of, so, which, and it's from this point that it's clear that, that, the, that the question is really insoluble. I mean, uh, it's similar to the situation with the uh, schismatic Eastern churches, is that there's, 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 a, there's a point up to which people are kind of acting in good faith and there's been some genuine misunderstanding and you can try and give people their due and go through the argument um, in detail and, uh, you know, try and be honest and fair about it and then come up with a, a position which uh, does justice to the truth, um, uh, but but shows that uh, the 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 concerns, the legitimate concerns of the ones who are erring, have been taken into consideration, and that's kind of what happened at the Council of Florence with the Orthodox. Um, but then, at a certain point, if it's then rejected, then there's, there's you can't do that second time, as it were. There's no there's no going back from that point, um, uh, and and Luther reaches that point much much earlier at this disputation in Leipzig. Um, and people don't really uh, don't really realise that, and a lot of the uh, the development of the Protestant crisis over the following period is um, tied to the fact that um, a lot of people naively, including the Emperor Charles V, unfortunately, think that some kind of solution, compromise, common understanding is going to is attainable uh, with the Protestants, whereas in fact they they've built in. Uh, the insolubility of the problem has been built in from the time of this disputation in Leipzig um, and the rejection of the probative value of the councils and the fathers. Um, so uh, um, eventually, uh, the following year, Leo X issues the bull Exerge Domine, 
on the errors of Martin Luther contains a long list of, of errors attributed to Luther, which he is certainly guilty of, um, and uh, which are solemnly condemned by, um, by the Pope. And it gives Luther um, 60 days to submit to the bull or be excommunicated. When the bull reaches Luther, he burns it. Now, and, but as I say, Luther is 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 safe in Saxony because the because the Pope is is has been not pursuing this as, as he should do because in order not to offend the Elector of Saxony to avoid the election of Charles V. But by this point, the election has happened. Charles V has been elected um, King of the Romans and Holy Roman Emperor elect, um, and is now immensely powerful. Uh, but uh, but even after this point, even after the, the, this ruse to try and prevent him being elected has failed, uh, at various points during the, the Reformation crisis, uh, fear that Charles V is going to become too powerful sabotages um, the solution of the problem. Um, Mary Luther burns the bull, um, and uh, so another bull is issued in January of the following year, 1521, excommunicating Luther. Um, so there's kind of no turning back from that point. Now, uh, the question is now, how is this going to play out on the temporal uh, sphere? Um, and and one of the things Luther's been playing on is, is, is resurgent nationalism. And uh, I wonder how, how much to some extent the idea of the Renaissance's undermining of the continuity of the medieval and ancient world and uh, implicit undermining of the plausibility of the of the Romanness of the Holy Roman Emperors uh, accentuates a German feeling of otherness because certainly Luther plays on that and plays on German nationalism and a German hostility to the Mediterranean world and um, so as I say it would have been terribly dangerous if if Charles V had decided to get on that bandwagon. I mean, perhaps we're helped by the fact that he's not very German, even though he's von Habsburg. Uh, as I say, he was born in Belgium, albeit in a Flemish-speaking area, and Flemish is 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 only just, definitely not just a dialect of German at this point. Um, in fact. Charles V didn't speak German when he was elected. Uh, he had to address the crowds in Frankfurt in Flemish, um, uh, which they were able to understand. So I mean, I mean, I'm no linguist, but I I I, I get the impression that 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 Flemish was the what so it's Dutch was at that point uh, about as different from German as Scots is from English. So it was understandable. Um, it just sounded a bit funny. Um, but uh, so Charles V, he actually, um, uh, he's supposed to, I don't know if it's apocryphal, he's supposed to, because he ruled so many different places, he's supposed to have been asked once, what language did he speak, given that you rule so many different places, what language do you actually speak? And he's supposed to have said, um, I speak Spanish to God, French to men, Italian to women, and German to my horse. Um, but, uh, I love quoting that to my German friends. Um, they're a bit fed up a bit now. Um, but uh, but uh, anyway, so, um, so Charles V wasn't really the guy to become the leader of German nationalism, thankfully. So, uh, but uh, in uh, 1521, the Diet of Worms, uh, um, the Diet like the Parliament of the Holy Roman Empire, is summoned. Charles V is present in person, and uh, Luther is summoned to it under a safe conduct. Um, and uh, of course, everybody's very well aware of the fact that Hus was summoned to the Council of Constance under a safe conduct, and then they just burned him at the stake anyway. So people are very nervous about Luther's safety, and Luther has become this kind of celebrated German hero um, uh, by this point. And um, uh, and there are these. So there's 
uh, Luther is supposed to have, he's sort of, uh, you know, he's asked, are these your works? And he says, yes, they are my, work, are my works. Are you willing to retract these works? And um, and he's asked if he can go away and think about it. And then he comes back and he gives the speech, which again, it's disputed whether he really said the stuff that he's supposed to have said. You know, he's famously supposed to have said, here I stand, I can do no other, and given this great speech about, you know, I'm just compelled by scripture and what can I do? And, and uh, unless someone can show me from scripture that I'm wrong, then I own it. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Charles V issues this statement in response, which is much better, um, in which he says, basically, you know, I am descended from the Catholic kings of Spain, from the Holy Roman emperors of this German nation, from the Archdukes of Austria and the Dukes of Burgundy, all of whom were to the death defenders of the Holy Roman faith. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and it cannot be that that one monk should be correct and all of Christendom should have erred for a thousand years. Um, and therefore I will expend my empire and my kingdoms and my, my duchies and my life and my body and my blood and my soul um, to extirpate this heresy. But I will honour your safe conduct. But, you know, after a certain number of days, it expires and then I'm coming after you. So, um, so Luther goes. And uh, um, unfortunately, inverted commas because it's not really unfortunate charles v is i mean it seems unfortunate but one reproaches oneself for thinking it's unfortunate charles v was a very chivalric chap and he really believed in keeping his word and and honoring other people's word and so he really was was not willing to to not to honor the safe conduct um, you know, one one in darker moments, one thinks, oh, go on, Charlie, just grab him in a back street and, and, and you know, toast him and that'll be the end of it. But uh, but but he didn't. He let him go home. And uh, and he was he was whisked away by his patron to a, to a castle uh, and kept there um, out of the um, because his because they were concerned that he was going to be hunted down and, and, and captured by Charles V, as Charles V said he was going to do. But this never happens. Now, it, it doesn't happen because all hell rises up to distract Charles V. So he um, he uh, is the Ottomans since capturing um, the Turks since capturing uh, Constantinople have been expanding and expanding and expanding into the into the Balkans. And uh, so that by by the end of the 1520s, they're besieging Vienna. So Vienna's close enough to falling. It doesn't. It doesn't fall. But they're, 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 You know, it's actually under siege. So the the cap, the Habsburg capital, albeit Charles V spends very little time there because uh, he's got so many other dominions. But um, uh, is is but his brother. He's kind of leaves his brother Ferdinand in charge of kind of central european stuff um but anyway uh, so so vienna is under serious threat uh, the french are um fighting to try and drive the habsburgs out of northern italy um and the popes are conniving with them because they're worried about charles v and how, how powerful he is so so that so 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 all the rival forces expend the 1520s distracting charles v so he's and during that period uh the reformation metastasizes this i mean everybody's coming up with their own random theories it's made worse by the fact that luther is hiding away in this castle um because back in wittenberg his base of operations uh all of his admirers and and disciples are coming up with all the load of crazy additional new ideas and arguing with each other and 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 turning on more and more things and 
Of course, this fellow in Switzerland, Zwingli, arrives and he has his own version of the Reformation, and Luther ends up hating him. And, um, but because so, so Luther, Luther believed that that as soon as anyone just freely read the Bible, guided only by the Holy Spirit, they would immediately see how right about everything Dr. Luther is, and then they would uh, then then the new true Church re-restored from the obscurity in which it lived for so many centuries. Um, uh, guided by Luther would come into existence. But of course, as it's all rubbish, that's not what happened. Everyone came up with their own random, weird and wonderful um, interpretation of, of, um, of the Bible and, and a thousand sects were born. And uh, including, uh, there's a great uprising of peasants in Germany who, who read the Bible and decide this means they shouldn't be being oppressed by their landowners. And uh, Luther, who's very much relying on the German aristocracy to promote his ideas, turns on them completely and encourages, uh, encourages them to basically ethnically cleanse all of these peasants. He wasn't a very nice man, Luther. He was also expecting the Jews would all now convert to Christianity, because the only reason they hadn't converted to Christianity was because... Um, uh, was because uh, it had been corrupted by the wicked papists. And now that the true nature of Christianity had been revealed by Dr. Luther, the Jews be like, oh dear, whoops, we crucified the Messiah. And we've been pointlessly um, observing the law that was abolished on the cross for all these centuries. But now Dr. Luther's come along and we understand uh, our terrible mistake. Please uh, allow us to be baptized, except of course, baptism isn't really necessary. But I mean, but I mean, uh, whatever, whatever you need to do, um, do it. Uh, and the Jews don't do that, obviously. They're quite clever, and they've got their own arguments. And they, it wasn't that they were just waiting for Luther to turn up to uh, to convince them that they were wrong. Um, and so they, they're not impressed. Sorry, no, still not converting. Certainly not to your weird and wonderful new version. And um, and so he goes completely nuts, and he writes this book called On the Jews and Their Lies, in which he goes on about how evil they are and how they should be put in camps and made to work for the true Germans and how we're at fault for not killing them. And uh, unsurprisingly, Mr. Hitler loved this book and had his own first edition, which he used to carry around with him all the time so yeah he's not a very nice man and uh, he's got all sorts of other lurid horrible doctrines one of his one of his um big backers philip of hess uh, gets bored of one of his wife well gets bored of his wife and decides he wants to get rid of her and have a new wife and he says oh luther can you issue with me with an annulment and luther's like well <laughs> that doesn't really work because you know I, i'm not actually claiming to be the pope so i can't actually say you can have an annulment because that wouldn't really make sense um, he's like, oh, that's okay. I can always just convert back to Catholicism and get an annulment off one of these corrupt Renaissance popes. And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. And uh, so, so he says, uh, so he says, uh, actually, well, you know, kings in the Old Testament, they had a lot of wives at the same time. So I'm sure we could we could sort something out about that. So he sends his his sort of right hand man Melanchthon to go down and 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 preside at the bigamous wedding of Philip of Hesse to his second wife. So absolutely insane. And of course, I mean, as I say, he sort of got Tourette's. So he accuses our Lord of committing adultery on several occasions as well, which apparently is is okay. I don't know how that works. Apparently, the, I mean, the a lot of the Protestant reformers' Christology and Trinitarian theology was absolutely terrible as well. But nobody ever gets onto that because they're they're um, everyone's concentrating on the original the er, things earlier down the down down the stream from the original error. And so the fact that it issues in in horrendous errors of Christology as well is not so much um, dealt with. I believe that Bellarmine went into a lot of detail on this subject. Um, I've, uh, uh, I know this uh, a fine Hungarian priest, Father Irvin Alachi, who did his doctoral uh, research um, on Bellarmine's writings against the, um, against the Christological errors of the reformers, but um, but they hasn't been, um, uh, Bellarmine's work on that hasn't been published yet. Um, uh, uh, I think his his commentary on 
uh, various parts of the Suma is sort of locked away by the Jesuits somewhere. And, and, uh, As I love Bellarmine's uh, brings up Luther about his. Oh, he 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 did he didn't commit any miracles. Oh wait, he did. When he was dead, his body stunk so much in the winter in a tin airside tin can that the stench came out and they couldn't move him. Hence the only miracle of Luther. <laughs> uh, lovely, lovely image. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, uh, but yeah, so so it all gets completely out of control. The principle of private judgment goes wild. Um, but um, and and so just so so initially we've got this problem that the popes are not doing enough because they don't want to annoy the Elector of Saxony. Then Charles V can't do enough because the French and the and the Muslims are are distracting him and he's got to deal with them. And uh, um, but by the end of the 1520s he's kind of dealt with that. At the Battle of Pavia in 1525, he um, his armies capture the King of France in person, who takes him away to Spain. Unfortunately, the whole chivalric thing kicks in again. Then the King of France, who's a treacherous swine, and and you can't trust him as far as you could throw him. Francis the First, he's like, I swear never to impede the cause of Christendom and get in the way of your important sacred duties, O Emperor, ever again. I'm so sorry for having sabotaged the defeat of these terrible heresies. Please let me go free so that. I can return to my kingdom and be a good Christian king. And uh, Charles V, I give you my word as a knight and a gentleman. And Charles V is like, oh gosh, well, uh, as a knight and a gentleman, I must accept your word. And Francis I is like, sucker. I mean, oh, thank you, thank you. Um, and uh, <laughs> then off he goes back to France and carries on as before. In fact, in the 1530s, he actually concludes a formal alliance with a bloody sultan, excuse me, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent um, against the Habsburgs, uh, which, which obtains for centuries afterwards. The Franco-Ottoman alliance. There was a famous painting of this with Suleiman and, and Francis, both of them very smug and sort of smiling at each other. Um, they, uh, um, and, uh, so, but in uh, 1527, uh, Charles V's armies in Italy, which are actually made up of German mercenaries who are actually massively influenced by Lutheranism, they're camped outside Rome. Charles V's trying to intimidate the Pope, who's Clement VI by this point. There was one good Pope in the meantime, Adrian VI, who was Dutch, who was put in there by Charles V himself, basically. Um, I mean, there was a free election, but Charles V made his views clear and was at hand. Um, uh, and uh, But he only reigned for a year, so nothing got done about it. And he, he was completely bewildered as to what on earth to do. He was the Bishop of Utrecht originally. He was like, he was surrounded by by corrupt, high-living, louche, sophisticated Italians um, uh, with lots of assassins and uh, um, ready to hand. And he's like, no, uh, what? So, so it was difficult and he didn't manage to get get anywhere and he was succeeded by another Medici so that was the end of any hope of reform so this is Clement the seventh who's pursuing the traditional policy of of, um, of 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 concentrating on making sure the emperor doesn't become too powerful and let and, and whatever happens to Christendom uh, it will just have to happen to Christendom um and um so uh, so Charles V's got his armies uh, stationed in Italy um and they're made up of these German mercenaries who are actually heavily influenced by Lutheranism and um uh, there's there's a there's a cash flow problem and uh, and they haven't been paid and they go nuts and decide to sack Rome so it's in fact uh, Sam Panarola in one of his prophecies predicted that this was going to happen, um, and um, so the uh, so Rome is 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 horribly sacked and terrible terrible things happen blasphemies and and terrible profanation and and, and rape and murder and, and all sorts of awful things and but I mean uh, I'm sure you know the vast majority of the victims had had not deserved it um, humanly speaking. Um, 
but uh, but I mean Rome as a as a corrupt papal court certainly deserved it. Um, and um, so uh, Clement the Seventh ends up in the power of Charles V. And uh, so, but by the time, but the problem is that although Charles V was all gung-ho for extirpating Lutheranism in 1521, by the time you get to the end of the 1520s, so, so in 1529, he's, you've got the problem of the Muslims besieging uh, Vienna, but they get through that. And in 1530, Charles V is crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope. It's the last time it ever happens, the last time anyone is crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope, Clement VII. He holds the coronation in Bologna, though, not in Rome, probably because due to the sack in 1527, he's very unpopular in Rome. So he decides it probably better not to risk uh, difficulties with the crowds. Um, uh, so, so he has the coronation there. So, but by the time you get to the end of the 1520s, Charles V is, is so desperate about how bad things have got in Germany while he hasn't been able to deal with it, that he's really hoping for a, um, for a, a compromise resolution rather than rather than just let's condemn these heretics and then and then and then crush them and of course because the popes are so worried about the power of the Habsburgs they're not going to do like the same thing they did with the Albigensians because it might have been possible if something like Trent had happened a bit earlier and if it had gone the full Lateran four and had said uh, right that's what the true religion is Protestantism is a heresy we've made it clear there's a bunch of anathemas no doubt about that anymore right now everyone gets an indulgence uh, if they go and wipe out Protestantism and uh, any, if any Protestants refuse to recant you can have their territory and their titles which is what they did with Albigensianism now that of course massively strengthened the French crown because in the end the Albigensian crusade was concluded by the French kings not by the sort of freelance Simon de Montfort uh, um, brigade that had originally pros been prosecuting the, the Albigensian crusade it ends with a massive extension of the power of the French crown into the south of France now in a similar way the north of Germany is not at all really in any way subject to the emperor um, but if if the popes just said yeah go go you you get rid of Protestantism and you can keep whatever you whatever you capture then uh, that would have been great from a Habsburg point of view but, it, but the popes would didn't want a strong empire and they had a much too strong empire as it was and so they weren't going to follow that kind of um, that kind of um, line of reasoning, and that becomes that's a general problem. I mean, the, the Reformation persists; Protestantism exists all over the world because the popes are unwilling to unleash the Catholic forces in the way that they did against Albigensianism. Anyway, so. Um, uh, so there's various attempts to work out compromise, um, uh, but the Pope, so Charles V is desperate to have an ecumenical council. Now the Protestants, every time they said, what you've said has been condemned, they say, we appeal to an ecumenical council. Now it's forbidden to appeal to an ecumenical council over the head of the Pope, but they don't care about that because... Uh, a, they don't believe in councils anyway, but they keep quiet about that because they want the support of the more reasonable people. And the more reasonable people are heavily influenced by conciliarism. So that, so it's, it's quite a standard thing, even though it's not really permitted, it's a standard thing. And it's thought to be okay by people who are influenced by conciliarism, which is an awful lot of people, to appeal to an ecumenical council over the head of the Pope. So by making this appeal, uh, Luther and the other reformers um, kick the question into the long grass because the popes don't want to have a council for the reasons we've discussed. They actually would never respect a council. So the Protestants, but they don't, but they 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 de-emphasize that. So they say they want a free council in Germany, right? What do they mean by a free council? Is a council where the Pope is not involved, where everybody accepts in advance that justification by faith alone is true, and where random Protestant reformers are given the same status as bishops. 
right? So, of course, so, so what they call a free council would be an invalid ecumenical council, which would be of absolutely no use to anybody, which would declare its allegiance to the Lutheran heresy as in the first instance before it did anything else, right? So, but, but they don't go into detail on that. They just say a free council in Germany and to an ordinary conciliarly influenced um, a German uh, who isn't necessarily yet a Protestant? That sounds very reasonable. A free council in Germany. We don't want a we don't want a a, a coerced council um, in in the Lateran Palace. So a free council in Germany sounds completely reasonable. So Charles V is working for some kind of compromise because he can't see his way without unequivocal papal backing of the type I was describing. He can't see his way to a military solution to the problem after a hard line council so he's he's hoping for a sort of compromisey huggy ecumenical council um in the wrong sense of ecumenical um and um uh and the popes are pretending because they're frightened of charles v are pretending that they're interested in having a council but in fact they're desperate for there not to be a council uh, for the reasons we've already discussed um uh and in fact the whole the term protestantism arises because uh, Clement VII is pretending sufficiently vigorously that he wants to have a council, even though he definitely doesn't, that people start to think there might actually be a council. And so the, um, and the Protestants start to get worried that there will be a council and that it might end up being something a bit like Trent ends up being that actually just very clearly defines Catholic doctrine. And then that's going to be bad for them. Uh, and so they start to build up conditions and, um, and get out clauses and, and and it's in the context of that that the term protestantism arises and also they're worried because charles v starts saying quite reasonably well in that, i want you to stop everything that you're doing no more trying to destroy catholic churches and turn them into protestant churches and close things down and enforcing your your protestant doctrines in the different areas of germany that you managed to gain control of if you're going to if we're going to honestly have a council we need to stop for the time being and the protestants are like realize that no 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 because if there is actually a council, that's going to be bad for us. So we need to get as much territory and as many rulers turned to our side and as much land as possible so that if there's a council and then they come after us, we've got as strong a position as, as we possibly can beforehand. Right. So it's in that is in that context that the term Protestant um, arises to describe the people who are not willing to cooperate. So um, uh, in the end, in uh, 1534, Clement VII dies, and he's succeeded by a Farnese Pope, um, Paul III. Now, Paul III actually genuinely does want to fix the problem and does want to have a council. But, I mean, he's still pretty much a sort of dodgy Renaissance Pope. Um, but he... Um, but he is, he's got a legitimate son and he's trying to promote the illegitimate son and he's very concerned about the interests of the Farnese family and all this kind of stuff. And it's so, but he does actually also, at least it's better than nothing, he also cares about Christendom and the state of the church and the fact that everyone's being dragged away into heresy and everything's falling to bits, right? So, so it's better than nothing. He actually does care about it, unlike Clement VII, who's only willing to pretend to care about it. Um, and um, so he, um, he starts to try and make much more genuine strides towards preparing for a council, despite a lot of curial opposition. And he brings a lot of reformers into the curia. So, um, so there have been uh, a, a slow development, there has been a slow development of people who are actually genuinely interested in trying to reform the church over the previous decade or so. And as I mentioned before, there's kind of two strands to this. There's a kind of the sort of Jesuity strand, which in a way is slightly the kind of catholic version of the kind of obedience-based voluntaristy 
Devotio Moderna stream that 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 goes nasty in Luther, and then there's the more sort of Savonarola stream of kind of neo medieval. Um, uh, um, let's go back to the real thing. Reintegrate reason and 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 faith, and um, and be extra medieval. Strand coming from Savonarola, so um, in a way uh, that you might. Um, of course, the Jesuits were. I mean, um, uh, Ignatius is the injury which leads to Ignatius's conversion and the change in his life. Uh, actually, happens in the opening opening skirmishes of the great endless rivalry and battle between the French kings and the Habsburgs at the beginning of the 1520s. Um, but um, uh, and, and he his he's very influenced by Devotio Moderna texts um, and uh, carries the imitation of Christ around with him all the time. The, the life of Christ, which he reads during his convalescence, is also comes from that stable. Um, and uh, whereas uh, Philip Neri is, um, is very influenced by Savonarola and privately venerates him as a saint, and so you've got these two different strands flowing there in what becomes the Counter-Reformation. Um, but uh, um, Paul III uh, puts together this Concilium de Emendanda Ecclesia, right, the um, a council concerning the amendation of the church to investigate what the problems are. And he, um, and, he and various key figures on it, um, Cardinal Carafa, who's involved in the foundation of the Theatines, um, uh, so a remained always remained quite small but was very influential counter-reformation order um and and contarini who was a layman uh, who was a catholic reformer associated with venice is brought into the college of cardinals and he's also placed on this um concilium and also uh cardinal pole who is uh, properly pronounced pool but i can't quite bring i think it's a poles and but it was pool anyway cardinal pool um uh, uh who's english he's actually the last He's the heir to the Plantagenets, so he's so the Plantagenets are the dynasty that, 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 that was supplanted by the Tudors in um, 1485, and the Tudors are very twitchy about them. Uh, Cardinal Pole's mother, um, Blessed Margaret Pole, she was born a Plantagenet. She's the last person to be born a Plantagenet, and she's eventually killed by Henry VIII for refusing to accept his supremacy over the Church. And uh, her son Reginald Pole has to get out of England to avoid being. Um, bumped off by Henry VIII because there, once Henry VIII decides to break with Rome, uh, um, he becomes very nervous about people who might be thought to have as good or a better claim to the throne than he does, who are unwilling to go along with this break with Rome. And uh, so, in fact, I think there's sort of assassins sent by Henry VIII all over Europe trying to get rid of Cardinal Poole. Um, but of course, he's a cardinal at this point, so he's not going to really become king. But there we are. And uh, but he's also put on the um, this this concilium, and they they put together a report, um, and uh, which comes out in 1536, and it's pretty brutal, and basically it says the problem is the papacy, Your Holiness. I mean, uh, you've been living appalling lifestyles. You have all of the corruptions uh, which which are causing unbelievable scandal and are tearing apart the church and have provided the opportunity for these errors to spread are all constitutional to the way in which the papacy is run. I mean, so, so, so it's a brutal report intended for internal circulation, but it gets out and is printed gleefully by the Protestants with, you know, sort of footnotes by Luther, smiley faces and exclamation marks and things. Um, uh, and um, so, so it, 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 it weakens, in some sense, some of the reformers in the Curia for a bit because they're seen as having, you know, washed everyone's dirty laundry in public. But I mean, but I mean, it needed to be dealt with. Um, 
but one of the problems is 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 the argument about location of any possible council, um, uh, because uh, the popes are worried that the Pope Paul the Fourth, Paul the Third, is worried that if it happens in Germany, it'll just get completely out of control. It'll become like Basel. It'll be get taken over by Protestants. It'll get invaded and held hostage by Protestant rulers, and um, and it'll go nuts. And then the popes will end up having to repudiate it, and then it'll become the Protestant Ecumenical Council, and it'll make the whole thing much much worse. But the um, but the Emperor Charles V is really worried that if it if it's held in you know sort of downtown Rome or somewhere nearby then or anywhere in the papal states basically that it will be seen as a joke council by by sort of neutral being swayed one way or the other people will say well this is obviously just controlled by the curia and it's it's not serious it's just another lateran five um and uh, so so th this is why ultimately when they finally get their act in order the council opens in uh trent and the reason why is because trent is actually an italian city um, speaks Italian, but it's actually legally in the Kingdom of Germany. It's the, sort of like one of the southernmost tip of the Kingdom of Germany. So they can say, well, okay, so it's it's normal, it's legally a German city, culturally an Italian city. So it's a, it's a doable compromise. But um, uh, so so one of the initial arguments is of what Charles V doesn't Charles V doesn't want there to be a lot of theology and a lot of pinning things down, because he's fighting uh, a sort of war to the death with the Protestants by this point. He's finally in Germany with armies, actually trying to deal with the problem. Um, but he hasn't got enough armies, he hasn't got enough money to pay them, and he hasn't got the kind of backing that Simon de Montfort and the kings of France had. Um, but he's doing his best against the Protestants who have formed into this Schmalkaldic League. Um, and, uh, and, and that war is raging as the Council of Trent uh, early sessions are going on. And um, Charles V is hoping that some kind of compromise can be sorted out. He's been very influenced by Erasmus. Now, Erasmus is, is a big-time humanist, but he's not at all desiring to destroy Catholicism theologically. He has a lot of questionable theological opinions, but he's not, um, but he's not, he doesn't intend to be a heretic and he intends to die in a state of grace and in communion with the See of Rome. And uh, probably to some extent, he's quite irritated that his, his, his role as the most famous reformer of the church has been completely usurped by Luther. So he's even less interested in, in any kind of compromise with Luther so but Charles V probably thinks there's more wiggle room than there really is because of the fact he's influenced by Erasmus to some degree um so Charles V would like the uh, Council of Trent to be concentrating on reforming the abuses in the church especially the abuse that the Holy See is most worried about the Holy See is terrified throughout the Council of Trent that the Council of Trent is going to declare it a heresy basically for bishops not to reside in their own diocese because if they do that then the entire dodgy curial structure will come crashing to the ground, which is entirely made up of people living off the revenues of dioceses that they've never visited in their lives and have no intention of visiting. Um, uh, so, so the Holy See is really worried that's going to happen. That's the sort of thing that Charles V would really like, quite like to see happen. And, he's, and, and he, so he wants re institutional reform of the church and we can leave the theology till later and then we'll have a bunch of ecumenical theologians will work out some kind of ambiguous formula that will bring back as many protestants in as possible and then i'll try and deal with the rest militarily so that that's what he wants now of course the reformers the papal reformers largely don't want that cardinal pole does want to try and give as much due to the Protestants' theological concerns as possible without straying into unorthodoxy. Um, and he is, 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 is considered suspect by Cardinal Carafa for that reason. The relations between them get very bad. Um, uh, but uh, in general, the reformers 
the, the Catholic reformers want the true doctrine to be clearly defined. So in the end, a compromise is worked out. So each session of Trent that actually issues documents um, uh, has a, a decree on doctrine and then a decree on reformation. Um, uh, so, so the so as I said uh, earlier, the um, uh, Trent is is held in in essentially three bursts. Um, uh, partly because the military situation, well, the, the first gap uh, occurs because having initially done rather well, the military situation goes south, <laughs> literally, for uh, Charles V, and, uh, and the, the cardinals have to get out of Dodge, um, uh, the bishops. Um, and, um, uh, and then there's another big gap because um, Cardinal Carafa becomes Pope. Um, now he's uh, Cardinal Carafa is is as one of these great reformers, and he um, uh, but he is is he thinks councils are useless. He's worried about conciliarism. He's worried about it being used as a vehicle of, of fudge um, uh, and, and, and 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 unhealthy doctrinal compromise. He also thinks that it ends up being a talking shop in which lots of things are declared that need to be fixed, and then nothing is done about it. Um, so he thinks, you know, I, I'm just going to do it myself and we don't need a council. So oddly, um, so he, he becomes Pope in 1555, dies in, in I think, 1559, maybe gone Paul IV. So he's Pope Paul IV. He's pretty ferocious, yes, 1559. Um, he, he's the one who famously said, even if my father was a heretic, I would gather wood to burn him. And uh, yeah, he's, 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 he's a scary man. And, um, and he, uh, he, uh, he, he sort of introduces the index of forbidden books, and he uh, and he uh, really beefs up the Inquisition, which he was heavily involved with beforehand. Anyway, the the, the Roman Inquisition, which had been sort of not had, hadn't really existed, there hadn't been a papally directed Inquisition since the uh, time of the Albigensian crisis, is restored by a bull called Lichet Abinitio, uh, issued by Paul the Paul the Third in uh, fifteen forty two, and um, and and Paul the Fourth. Is uh, is very keen on promoting that. Um, he uh, he purges Rome of all the prostitutes and the corrupt clerics. And his his I mean his people often think that his pontificate was was just a bit too much and a bit too crazy and and was a step back for the Counter Reformation. That that uh, whether that's true or not is 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 a, is a really one of these big questions that will be settled at the last judgment, as it were, because he. Um, he wasn't keen on the Jesuits. Now, for a long time, people were kind of like, oh, Paul IV, well, nice guy, and he solved a lot of moral problems in the papacy, but, you know, he, he went a bit too far because, ha, ha, he thought the Jesuits were a bad idea. Whereas nowadays, people are kind of like, oh, he thought the Jesuits were a bad idea, did he? That's, that's very interesting. Um, uh, so, so it's kind of uh, people's views have shifted a little bit on that front. Um, uh, he famously, uh, he, he said uh, to all the religious who weren't remotely following their rule or doing anything, they were just hanging around Rome, having a good time, he sent out a decree saying return to your religious houses and observe your rules and get out of my city and they're like oh yes oh, thank you your holiness how amusing and then he sends another decree um saying the same thing you know go home to your houses or you will regret it and they're like oh, oops, excuse me and then uh, and then the um and then uh, so they they don't take him seriously and then to their horror all these religious get arrested and sent off to be galley slaves for 10 years <laughs> so, so oh, i should have just gone home to my religious house oh. <laughs> and um so we could do with a bit of that as well um and um 
And, you know, you're supposed to have summoned in all these corrupt uh, pluralistic bishops and said, you know, put several sheets of paper on the table in front of him and said, look, here are all the different dioceses and benefices which you possess. Pick one, go to it and let me never see you again. Can you see that, that, that boat with the oars sticking out of it through the window? Yes, yes, right, thank you. <laughs> and uh, so he was pretty severe, but he was so hardline and so aggressive. Uh, I mean, he did really want, he tried to dissolve the Jesuits and uh, he summoned in the second master general, general of the Jesuits, whatever they call him. And um, a very interesting uh, conversation. He said, uh, he said, the level of authority which you give to your general is completely unacceptable. It's insane. It doesn't make any sense. Your concept of obedience is crazy. You don't celebrate the office in common like you're supposed to. You're not real religious. I'm not having any of this. So either you limit, you set, you limit your superior to two, three or four year terms and you start celebrating the office in common, or I'm going to dissolve you. Because if, if you don't, one day a new Satan will arise from among your ranks and destroy the church. Um, uh, so, um, yeah. And, uh, but they got away with it. They, 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 like, they like delayed and uh, Cardinal Crow, Pope Paul IV died and um, they were able to carry on not celebrating the office in common and, and having a vast concept of obedience. But which remained very controversial. Um, but there we are. So, um, so Carafa, uh, Paul the Fourth, leads to a kind of gap. So the three basic, um, the three basic uh, periods are the initial one, fifteen forty-five to fifteen forty-seven, in which uh, they issue the decree on the canonical scriptures, the decree on original sin, the decree on justification and the decree on the sacraments in general, on baptism and on confirmation. So they get quite a lot done in that initial initial period. And then under and by the by the by uh by the time it reconvenes, um Paul III is dead. So uh it's it's then convened under Julius the third um uh, from 1551 until 1552 um and uh, and and issues the decree on the Eucharist, the decree on penance and the decree on extreme unction. And uh, and then there's the there's the Paul the Fourth gap, and then it's resumed again under uh, Pius the Fourth from uh, 1561 to 1563, and that they issue the decree on communion, on the sacrifice of the mass, on orders, on matrimony, on purgatory, and on sort of the veneration of images and things like that. So. Um, uh, uh, but in the early sessions, there are very, very few bishops. So uh, it, it, it's sort of only just enough to really start a council. We were talking about low double figures. But by the last sessions, uh, there, are, there, are, there are more than 100 bishops present at the council. And they, and they, as it were, they reaffirm their commitment to all the decrees that were issued in the opening sessions of the council. So it's very touch and go. And the national composition of the bishops is quite different at different periods um, to do with the politics and, and whether what, what the relations are between the French and the Habsburgs and all that kind of thing at different times. Um, uh, but, but by the time they reach the, the end of the council, they really begun to realise that they are that there's something quite dramatic and seismic is happening here, and that they really have done something amazing, and that that because I mean, in terms of the volume of dogmatically defined uh, um, texts of, of of dogmas that have been produced, Trent is probably unparalleled. I mean, there are a lot of anathematizing canons issued by Vatican I, but nevertheless, Trent is a is a huge chunk. Of, of, of everything that's ever been uh, defined in the most solemn way with the highest censures uh, in the history of the church. And um, uh, there's some, 
uh, there are a lot of, it's very theologically dense, all the different questions which arise over what is precisely to say of original sin. One of the problems which comes later is that they don't ever fully decide what to say about predestination and that that is never properly sorted out it ends up leading to a huge row between <clears throat> the traditional religious orders and the jesuits at the end of the century which is never properly resolved and many of the problems in the church that have occurred since then it came from the fact that it that it was never properly resolved this question um they also um they they can they're, they're thinking about dealing with the reformation of the princes about what to do about politics and in the end that gets dropped because they don't want to offend the princes and it's sort of a quid pro quo because the uh, the, the popes as it were in exchange for it not being solemnly defined that it's a that it's a contrary to divine law for a bishop not to be present in his diocese they drop the reformation of the princes and that's that's going to cause a lot of problems as well how many problems it's going to cause later on is not as not that clear at the time because um how weak the papacy is going to become relative to catholic monarchs is not is not yet obvious at the end of trent it looks as if things might go the other way entirely um uh the um of course the 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 great instruments uh of uh, which carry on uh, the work of Trent. There's, of course, the seminary, the idea of having a special training college for priests, that becomes terribly important. Um, uh, immediately after the council closes, Pius IV issues the uh, Tridentine Profession of Faith, which is the most, which is the, which is the, together with the Oath Against Modernism, is the last creed to have been issued by the extraordinary magisterium. So, so in fact, I mean, some of the problems in the church now come from the fact that the people should be being required for, for, to, to subscribe to the Tridentine Profession of Faith and the Oath Against Modernism, which are the last two creedal statements issued by the highest uh, acts of the Magisterium, but they have been set aside. Um, I mean, they're not, they can't be set aside because they're irreformable, but I mean, they've been, uh, for, for administrative purposes, they've been set aside for half a century or more at this point, and, and that's one of the big problems. Immediately after Trent, um, uh, the creed of Pius IV is very helpful in, in getting rid of um, problematic uh, people who are unclear whether they're Protestants or not, because there's now a piece of paper which synthesizes everything that's been defined by Trent, which you could just slam in front of someone and say, sign that, right, no, you're not signing it, get out. You've got 30 days and then we're coming for you. So so that, that manages to, you know, clearly separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, the Catechism of Trent, which uh, Charles Borromeo is uh, heavily involved in, um, uh, is terribly important in, in giving, uh, is sort of helping to restore doctrinal order. There's a kind of a reference point to which people can go in a way that, uh, in, a, in, a, in a less fulsome way, uh, the Catechism of John Paul II managed to, uh, managed to bring things back from the brink of the chaos that they had reached uh, in the early 1990s. Unfortunately, that hasn't persisted but anyway um uh, um the um uh the the breviary is reissued uh so so uh saint Pius v is not um is not a pope during the council but he 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 immediately follows on from the council and uh, so he, much of the work is uh, that, that was asked to be done by the council is is done by Pius v so he he issues a new version of the breviary and of course, famously in 1570, a new version of the Missal. But what these are are just purifications. Um, 
in the course of the sort of neo-pagan period of the Renaissance, lots of, 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 of nonsense had got into those two texts, you know, comparisons of Our Lady with Greek goddesses and, and references to God the Father as Zeus and all this kind of comparisons of Christ with Apollo and uh, so, I mean, really terrible stuff. So, so that's all purged out by Pius V. Um, and um, uh, so, so that's, uh, that's tremendously important. Of course, he doesn't, he's not attempting to innovate at all. So all he's doing is restoring the, the Roman rite to how it was before these various Renaissance elements got in there. And he says that if anyone can prove that their usage of the Roman rite is, um, is at least 200 years old, as of 1570, in continuous use, then you don't have to use the 1570 missile, you can use your version of the Roman rite instead. So it's, it's very much a conservative um, a restoration of the missile. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the Vulgate, yes. So he, um, uh, the, Rasmus had issued a, uh, his own uh, version of the Greek New Testament and his own translation into Latin of the Greek New Testament, uh, which departed in many respects from the Vulgate. And that had helped pave the way for Luther in that it had, um, uh, implied that you know everything that happened since the ancient world didn't really count because it was all based on a slightly dodgy translation of scripture now the the popes were aware that the vulgate is not beyond all criticism um and that there are reasonable debates to be had over over this and that translation of here and there of, of many different things in the vulgate but the key thing about the vulgate was that it had to be upheld that you would not fall into error theologically on account of taking it as the reliable translation. Because if you didn't say that, then you then the Protestant claim that you might as well scrap everything that had been done while people only spoke Latin, which is kind of Protestantism riding on the Renaissance linguistic snobbery, would, would be unanswerable. So one of the first decrees that the, the, the Trent issues is, is the decree on the canonical scriptures. And the decree on the canonical scriptures says that uh, that the canon is the text corresponding to the old Latin Vulgate edition. So they're not saying that the inspired text is the Vulgate. They're saying that the, the, the inspired text corresponds substantially to the Vulgate, such that the Vulgate defines what's in the Bible and isn't in the Bible, and that you're not going to fall into error in faith and morals through treating the Vulgate as a reliable text. But obviously there are lots of different traditions of a transmission of the Vulgate. And so after the Council, the question of what is the official edition of the Vulgate that we are to take as not going to lead you into error if you treat it as authentic. And so um, uh, Pope Sixtus V um, uh, it decides to, well, there's the commission put together to, to uh, work on the Vulgate, um, and it takes a very long time to produce an official version. Then Pope Sixtus V gets annoyed, thinks he's rather a good textual scholar himself, thank you very much, and grabs the Vulgate and decides to just finish it all off himself and then issue it. And he has this bull and everything to say how this is it, go ahead, take this, lads. And, and he issues it and everyone's terribly embarrassed because it's not that good. And, and no one wants, he wants to sort of tell the Pope that it's not that good. But and he's, he's hurrying to get it published, but he never actually promulgates the bull because he still hasn't quite fixed everything. So, so it's been published, but he's actually making further amendations. And he issues this decree to say that for 10 years, you can't have a new, nobody else but the Holy See's 
printing presses can issue this this because he's actually still fixing various things and and then he dies two years later and the cardinals immediately ban the publication of his version of the vulgate recall and destroy all copies and then they let the commission get on and finish what they were doing and then clement the eighth issues it and promulgates the bull so the clementine vulgate as it's called that was a close shave because uh because uh, although if you can find a copy of sixus the fifth vulgate apparently it's worth a fortune because they, they tried to destroy all the copies of it so um uh so so it's, it's quite a collector's edition um it's like one of these funny stamps where you know they print the number the wrong way around or something um and um yeah so so you've got those are the texts that, that are kind of forming the backbone of the counter-reformation the tridentin profession of faith the new breviary the new missal i say new but they're very much not new i should emphasize that for reasons which perhaps might be obvious um uh, the vulgates the clementine vulgate and the uh, catechism of the council of trent um, and of course, seminaries uh, as an institution, they, the council leaves two questions to be settled by the Pope afterwards. One is um, whether to allow communion under both kinds in certain places and whether to allow married clergy. And, um, and in the end, the Popes decide not to. They do allow a communion under both kinds initially, but in the end, the places that had wanted it decide it was actually a bad idea and asked that it not be continued. And so it stops. Um, because it actually becomes one of the ways of distinguishing Catholics from Protestants, so they don't really like having communion under both kinds. And um, and married clergy, the, the 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 their confidence that it might be possible with seminaries and all these other reforms to actually have a, a, a continent clergy who aren't leaving scandalous lives revives, and um, and so they end up actually saying no, we're not going to have married clergy, and we're going to stick with the uh, with the apostolic discipline of continence. And so, so they don't wobble after all on that question, which is a bit of a relief. Um, uh, Trent, there's so much, and we haven't been able to go into an awful lot, and it would require ten podcasts, and I'm just not old. I'm just too young, too old by this point. No, that was too, um, too, um, not young enough, too old to. But the, I should say, in a way, Trent, we can't possibly understand it in the way that we can understand the previous councils, and the reason why is because. The, the, the ecclesiastical environment in which we live is defined by what looks like, we may be wrong, but at the moment it looks like the destruction of almost everything that Trent achieved. Um, so uh, so it's like, um, and of course there wasn't another council for 300 years, so the this entire era was defined by Trent and Vatican I really just kind of finished off things in some ways that the Trent had begun, especially in regard to the authority of the popes, which is a question that Trent in the end didn't resolve. Um, and so, you know, people correctly say that in many ways the Tridentine era continues on up until the 1960s. And then um, what happens in the 60s is so much seen as a revolt against Trent that, um, and, and it seems in so many ways that the, that the world that Trent created, which in so many ways saved the church from total destruction, has now been laid waste. That it's kind of like, it's really hard in the middle of that crisis to look at Trent in an objective way and come up with some sort of uncontroversial answer to what its ultimate significance is for the history of the church. So, I mean, one, if you if you think that the, the anarchy of the 60s and after is just marvellous, then you're going to end up with a bogey Trent, 
right? Trent is just bad and it, it ruined the church for centuries. And now we've returned to the wonderful, joyful springtime of, 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 of loose living ecumenical dialogue with every Protestant sect under the sun. And isn't it marvelous? Well, so that's one possible approach. Um, the other is to see Trent as just golden. And, you know, everything was wonderful as a result of Trent. And then homosexual communist Freemasons infiltrated the church in late 1958 and, and wrecked everything in a, in, a, in a single instance and has destroyed this dream and all we need to do is go back to you know early 1958 and everything will be wonderful so the 50s and trent end up as the standard of comparison for absolutely everything and then the sort of third possibility is the sort of tragic shakespearean tragedy account of trent which is that the the the, 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 the things that it didn't deal with and it didn't resolve uh, are the kind of the little flaws in in the incredible achievement which after hundreds and hundreds of years of being chipped away at by sinister forces are, are able to explode into the into the problems which have now engulfed the faithful um, and of course obviously from the way I phrased that I, 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 I err towards the third possibility but I, I do have the scintilla of humility to see that that, that, that when you're in the middle of, of, of the battle you know, it's very hard to, to to look down and see exactly which regiments should be where and which hills should be being defended and which ones should be being surrendered. Right. So, I mean, yeah, Trent is, is a titan of an ecumenical council and, um, and the fact that we're here at all um, and the, 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 the Catholic Church is not just a tiny number of people in, in, in living in exile, some Greek island or something, <laughs> is, is, is because of the Council of Trent. Um, uh, and um, okay. but what allowed its work to be subtly undermined and, and, and all the many difficulties which subsequently arose to, to occur I mean starting uh, from the mid 17th century um, is, 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 is in a way the question of our own time and so it's hard to definitively resolve well, Doc, dude, that was great. Uh, appreciate it. And we'll, uh, I'll include some books underneath in the uh, description section, like the Council, uh, the Canon Decrees of Trent, the uh, Catechism, the Roman Catechism, and uh, Facts About Luther. That's a great book. Uh, people can get a little, have a weekend read over that one. But uh, hey, Doc, appreciate it as always, and we'll see you next time for Vatican One.